Good morning. Beloved, we have this great privilege every Lord's Day to assure one another with the gospel. The scriptures tell us that Christ alone is our strong and perfect plea. As Hebrews 9.12 explains, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood, the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus purchased forgiveness for all our sin at the cross, and he stands as our great assurance and only hope. This is what we're going to think about in our passage this morning. So please turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. As we prepare our hearts to hear God's Word, let's now come to Him in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you acknowledging the depths of our sin. We confess that our only hope of forgiveness is found in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that your word will expose our iniquity and restore our souls. We pray that your spirit will convict, comfort, and assure our hearts with the truths of the gospel from Psalm 130. O Lord, we plead that you will enable us to behold the glory of Christ and to respond with reverence and awe. Produce new life in those who remain in darkness and bring glory to your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Psalm 130, verse 1. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Dave was deeply discouraged. He had once again fallen into sin and felt as if he was drowning in it. Sunday came, and Dave did not want to go to church. He reluctantly sat through the service, distracted and ready to go home. But as God's word was read and sung, it began to slowly work on his heart. As he began to contemplate these truths, he noticed other members in the congregation. He saw an older saint who he knew had been fighting for contentment for many years. He saw a young mom struggling to keep her children quiet so, just so that she could sing at least one song uninterrupted. He got a glimpse of a sister who has been enduring unimaginable suffering. And as he saw, as both, as he saw these struggling saints sing to the Lord 
and hear these gospel truths in their songs, his soul began to stir. He was encouraged and confessed his sins to the Lord and trusted in the great assurance of pardon in Christ. Friends, if you're a Christian, then you can identify with Dave's testimony. Think back to the last time you discouraged in your fight with sin. Remember how the ministry of the word and corporate worship encouraged your soul. This is one of God's design for our corporate gathering, that we might minister the gospel to one another. Martin Luther knew this well. He once told a friend, I intend to make vernacular psalms for the people, that is, spiritual songs, so that the word of God, even by means of song, may live among the people. To that end, he wrote a hymn called Out of the Depths, based on the 130th Psalm. He wrote it because of his themes of forgiveness, assurance, and hope. Psalm 130 is a song meant to encourage weary saints to find forgiveness and hope in God. It is one of 15 psalms that are titled A Song of Ascents. You'll see that at the beginning of verse 1. This collection was meant to be sung by pilgrims as they journeyed up to Jerusalem for corporate feasts three times a year. The Song of Ascents would have prepared their hearts for personal pardon and corporate worship. These songs would prepare their hearts for personal pardon and corporate worship. And this is what we'll find in our psalm this morning. Psalm 130 is a song of, a personal, of personal assurance in the context of covenant community. Now, one, Psalm 130 is made up of four couplets that can be group, grouped into two, verses 1 to 4 and verses 5 to 8. In verses 1 to 4, the psalmist finds the assurance of forgiveness in God. In verses 5 to 8, the psalmist then responds to God's forgiveness by waiting for his promised redemption. We'll see that the author's personal assurance serves as a testimony, a spur, to encourage all of Israel to hope in the Lord. Psalm 130 moves from personal assurance to corporate hope. From personal assurance to corporate hope. And these are the two points for our sermon this morning. Personal assurance and corporate hope. So what do you do when you're caught in sin? First, you must turn to God for personal assurance. Assurance begins with a plea for mercy. Look again at verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, what are the depths here that the psalmist finds himself in? The author gives no contextual clues about his circumstances. We don't know if he's facing an insurmountable trial like David before his enemies, or if he's weighed down by ongoing suffering. We just do not know. But I think the author's absence of details serves us in at least two ways. First, it highlights the fact that these depths are universally experienced. So these depths are not reserved for those facing difficult circumstances only. Second, it brings the author's heart into focus. Instead of worrying about the circumstances that led him there, the psalmist draws our attention to the distress of his soul. You can hear the desperation in his cry for mercy. I cry to you, O Lord. 
hear my voice. Be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Whatever he is facing, the psalmist knows his desperate need for God to save him. Now before we continue, let me ask you, how often are you aware of your need for God? We can be so easily preoccupied with fixing our circumstances. But have you ever stopped to consider the state of your soul? You might be able to ease your circumstances by getting a new job or moving to another country. But maybe you've not dealt with the real issue in your heart. This is why you need to be regularly reading God's word. As you heard last week, you must let God's word expose your heart before him so that you can cry to him for help. So we see that the psalmist is in dire need of God's intervention. But what is really going on in his heart? What is he feeling? What appears that he feels cut off from God's presence. We know this from that repeated petition. Did you notice his main prayer in verse one to two? That God will hear his prayer. He's not confident that God will answer him. He is asking God to listen to his petition. Please, oh God, hear my voice. This is why this use of the depths is describing his spiritual condition, his, his cut, being cut off from the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, the depths often referred to God's wrath. For instance, Moses uses the depths to describe God's judgment of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. Or listen to what the sons of Korah say in Psalm 88, 4-7. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. So in our passage, the author recognizes that his soul is in grave danger because of his sin. We know that he's thinking about his own sin because of what he says in the next verse. Look at verse three. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities or sin or transgression, O Lord, who could stand? As Augustine concluded, the psalmist cries out under the weight and waves of his sin. Friends, you need to know that there is no greater trial there is no heavier burden. There is no more dire need than your sin. Sin corrupts your fellowship with God and destroys your relationship with others. The reason that so many of us are miserable is because of indwelling sin. Just think about it. How much more joy would you have if you were not weighed down with the guilt of lust or anger? How much more sweeter would your relationships be if sin did not constantly drag you into the pits of anxiety, impatience, or bitterness? 
Sin is always the culprit that robs you of your joy and sucks the life out of your soul. It is sin that separates you from God. And if it's not dealt with, it will lead you to eternity of death and hell. Friends, do you know the grave danger of your soul when you continue in unrepentant sin? So what should you do when you find yourself here? You should cry out to the only one who can save you. Even though the psalmist feels the weight of a sin, he cries out to his Lord. The, the word Lord there in verse 1 is in all caps. So look at verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. This tells us that the psalmist is using the covenant name of God, Yahweh. This is the name that God associates with his covenant people. So think back to what God told Moses in Exodus 3.15. Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So the name of Yahweh was exclusively used by those who had a covenant relationship with God. That's a binding relationship of faithfulness, loyalty, and love. So when the psalmist evokes the name of Yahweh here in his cry, he's asking God to remember his promises to his people. He's surely thinking of God's promise, for instance, to Solomon after the dedication of the temple. So listen to God's promise in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14 to 15. This is what God says to Solomon and his people. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. As the psalmist says, let your ears, O Lord, be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He is trusting and calling upon his covenant God to answer him. Beloved, this is an act of humility and faith. When you turn to the Lord in your sin and cry for forgiveness. It takes humility and faith. The psalmist here acknowledges his need for mercy, and he trusts in his covenant-keeping God to answer him. Friends, where do you turn when you find yourself in need of God's forgiveness? Where do you go? Do you humble yourself before the Lord and trust in his promises? Or do you wallow in self-pity? Do you try to pretend everything is okay? Or do you try to distract yourself with worldly pursuits? When you sin, the only thing you can do is humbly acknowledge your iniquity and ask God for forgiveness. You must plead for his mercy because forgiveness belongs to the Lord and to the Lord alone. It is on the basis of this that the psalmist cries out to the Lord in verse 3 to 4. Verse 3 to 4 serves as the grounds or the reasons for the author's plea in verse 1 to 2. Here in verse 3 to 4, he begins with a sobering question and concludes with a gracious assurance. He begins with a sobering question 
and concludes with a gracious assurance. So look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now the word mark here literally means to mark off or keep account. Is this idea of God keeping a ledger or record of all the psalmist's sins. And this tells us at least two things about God in relation to our sin. First, it tells us that God can mark off your iniquity. God is able to keep an account of every single sin that you've ever committed. As we heard last week, he knows your thoughts. He knows your ways. There's nothing you can hide from God. Second, this tells us that God is able to hold you accountable for your sin. Friends, the most frightening thing about Judgment Day is not that your sin will be exposed, though that is terrifying. The most awful thing is to realize that God will judge your sin. You will have to give an answer for every careless thought, every evil desire, every sinful deed. I just want you to stop and think about this. Think about your most shameful thoughts, your most perverse desires, your most wicked acts. And no matter how much you have hurt others or hurt yourself, it pales in comparison to your fence before your creator. As David exclaims after committing adultery and murder against you, you only, O God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin, my friends, is a full-on assault against God. It is complete defiance and rebellion against him. It is to be like our first parents and say that your way is best. Every sin is an effort to be like God and ultimately worship yourself. Friends, who are you to defy the one who holds your every breath? And if the Lord should mark your iniquity, who could stand? No one. No one could stand. The psalmist uses this word stand to describe our hopeless state before God. If God should mark your iniquity or any iniquity, then no one can stand before him. This is because all of us, all of us in this room are born in sin. We inherit Adam's guilt and his sinful nature. In Adam, we are under God's wrath and we deserve his judgment. And in our own rebellion, our own wicked acts, we are storing up wrath for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Friends, you need to know, there's no amount of money or arguments or good deeds that can acquit you in the courtroom of God. There's nothing you can do to justify yourself and your sin. In fact, none of us could stand one millisecond in God's presence without his wrath lashing out against you. We get a glimpse of this throughout the Bible. So, for instance, one example, think about Uzzah. Think about the priest, Uzzah. Remember the story of King David? He's bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. There's great festivities and rejoicing in the Lord. And the priests are carrying the ark on a cart against God's prescribed means. When the cart tips over, Uzzah reaches out to save it. And what happens? 
As soon as Uzzah touches the ark, God broke out against him. Immediate death. Uzzah did not understand God's holiness and his sinfulness. This is a small picture of what it will be like if you stand before a holy God in your sin. Friends, this is our sinful state apart from Christ. Oh, friends, do you see the ugliness of your iniquity before the Lord and the hopelessness of your sin without a mediator? All of your sin deserves the full and immediate penalty of death and hell. This is our hopeless state before a holy God. But the good news is that God promises forgiveness to his covenant people. Look again at verse four. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This word forgiveness describes a debt that has been paid in full. God takes the ledger of sin and burns it in the fire. He does not hold it against you. It is paid, done away with. And the scripture tells us that this forgiveness belongs to God and God alone. He has the right to either condemn you or forgive you. To say guilty or not guilty. Condemned or righteous. He alone has the right because he alone is God. So how can you become a recipient of his forgiveness? How can you receive his mercy? Well, it's by coming to God through his prescribed means. It's coming to God through his covenant. His covenant. You see, in God's covenant with Israel, forgiveness was always provided by God through an atoning sacrifice. Forgiveness was always provided by God through an atoning sacrifice. So just think back to the Exodus. Remember the last plague when God sent the angel of death to kill every firstborn son. The angel passed over every doorpost that was covered by the blood of a lamb. And though Israel deserved to die like the rest of Egypt, God atoned for a sin through the blood of a sacrifice. Or remember when Israel came up to Mount Sinai Moses took the blood of calves and goats and he sprinkled the book of God's covenant and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Exodus 24 verse 8. It is the blood of the covenant that atones for sin and gives forgiveness. As Hebrews 9 22 reminds us, under the law almost everything is purified by blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the psalmist here is crying out for God's forgiveness by trusting in God's provision. He's crying out for God's forgiveness, trusting in God's provision. This great assurance of forgiveness in God's atoning sacrifice is offered to everyone who will come to him and trust in his word, his covenant word. Friends, do you know the forgiveness of the Lord? Have you come to acknowledge your guilt, 
and trust in his gracious provision of atonement. This side of Calvary, we have a far greater assurance with a more perfect sacrifice. Do you know this ballast of assurance in Jesus Christ? In Christ, we have a great high priest who invites all to draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Beloved, in Christ, you have confidence to confess your sins. You have confidence to come to the Lord for forgiveness because he is faithful and he is just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But maybe some of you are slow to confess your sin because you think you need some time to wallow in your guilt, to produce some humility. But this is a wrong way to think about God's forgiveness. Did you notice that purpose statement in verse 4? Look again at verse 4. With you there is forgiveness, so that, the purpose, you may be feared. The reason God forgives sinners is so that he might receive glory. Friends, do not wait to come to Christ for the assurance of pardon. Because when you come to him, it brings God great glory to forgive you of all iniquity. When you rightly understand your sin before God and you receive his assurance of pardon, there is nothing left for you to do than to respond with reverence and awe, to fear the Lord. God forgives wretched sinner like you and me so that he might be worshipped. So he might be worshipped. Beloved, I think many of us need to spend more time marveling at God's forgiveness so we may honor him with our lips and our lives. Spend time throughout the week meditating on the gospel so that your heart will be prepared for corporate worship. Now, one of the pressing questions of the Old Testament was how can a holy God actually forgive sinners? How could God be just in forgiving the guilty? And it's this question that moves a psalmist to wait on the Lord and hope in his promised redemption. So first, you must turn to God for personal assurance. And second, you must hope in God's promised redemption for Israel. Once the psalmist knows God's forgiveness, how does he respond? We'll look again at verse 5. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. As the psalmist is assured of God's forgiveness, he is strengthened here to wait on the Lord. Now, what does it mean to wait on God? Well, it does not mean that he's waiting on God because God is somehow delayed in fulfilling his promises. He's not waiting on God because he's late, often how my wife is waiting on me. It also doesn't mean that the psalmist is waiting around like a lazy bum. He's not inactive, playing video games until the Lord comes. Rather, his waiting is an exercise of faith. We see this from verse 5. He says he trusts in God's word. He hopes 
in God's word. As he waits, he trusts in what God has promised. For him to trust in God's word, he must know what it says. He must work hard to read scripture, to allow God's word to inform how he interprets the circumstances. He must turn to scripture for encouragement and hope. It also doesn't mean that his waiting is filled with anxiety. He is not like a restless mom anxiously waiting on her son's return after he just got his driver's license. Some of you moms know what I'm talking about. Rather, the author is waiting with expectancy and hope. He's waiting with expectancy and hope. And we see this from that illustration of verse 6. He says he is like a watchman who eagerly waits for sunrise. He's eagerly waiting for the Lord. As surely as the sun will rise, so does the psalmist hope in the Lord. He knows that God will fulfill all of his promises and bring them to final completion. So he waits on the Lord. Now in verse 5 to 6, as we've seen throughout the psalm, the psalmist is not describing his circumstances, but rather a posture of his heart. This is a heart posture. This waiting is a matter of his heart. Did you see that in the text? He says that his soul waits. His soul hopes. His soul is waiting on God. His, heart, his soul is humbly resting in God's assurance and eagerly hoping for future deliverance. This is a heart that knows God's assurance of forgiveness and is content no matter the circumstance. So we'd be wrong to assume that the psalmist situation has changed. We'd be wrong to assume that all is well with his situation. He could still be in the depths of difficult circumstances. But at, even still, no matter what, the psalmist trusts in his God. His soul is resting. He has a heart of contentment. Now, we'll hear more about this calm and quieted soul next week from Psalm 131. But what exactly is the psalmist waiting for? He says he's waiting on the Lord. What, what exactly is he waiting for? Some say that the author is waiting on God's forgiveness, that once he goes to the temple and makes the sacrifice, then he'll know God's forgiveness. Others suggest that the psalmist is waiting on God's personal presence, that he's been forgiven, but now is waiting on that sweet communion that sometimes follows. But I think there's a better explanation in light of the context. And the easiest place to see this is in verse 7. So look at verse 7. The psalmist says, O Israel, hope, or the word there is actually wait in the Lord. O Israel, wait in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. So here we have a parallel between the author's personal waiting in verse 5 to 6 and Israel's waiting for the Lord in verse 7 to 8. Just as he waits, he exhorts Israel to wait with him. Now, the question is, what are they waiting for? What is the psalmist personally waiting for? What is Israel waiting for? Well, verse 8 tells us. 
Verse 8. And he, that's God, will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The psalmist is waiting for the day when God will complete final redemption. When he will complete final redemption. He's waiting for the day when, God, when forgiveness will not be in shadows, but in reality. Here we see that the psalmist's personal hope is united to Israel's hope. Remember, God made a covenant not just with individuals, but with a people. God promised one day redeem every single member of his covenant community to all his elect people. And on that final day of redemption, through the scriptures we see that sin will be no more. God promised a day when he will deal with sin completely and fully. There will be no more separation from God. God will dwell with his people fully. He will come and reign as king. So here the psalmist has experienced personal forgiveness, but he's longing for what we call that final eschatological hope, that end times hope, when God brings all of his promises to bear. He's longing for the day when sin will be no more and God will make all things new, when he'll reverse the curse and usher in his kingdom forever. Beloved, can you say with the psalmist that your heart is humbly, expectantly waiting on the Lord? Or do you find that your heart is always clamoring, always restless, always needing more? What you and I need is to put on the mind of Christ and to live in light of his sure word. He has promised today when sin will be done away with, and every tear will be wiped away. Friends, every good longing of your heart, if you are a Christian, will find final fulfillment when Christ returns. The question is, do you believe that? Often our hearts are weary and burdened with sin because we spend so little time thinking about heaven. How often do you think about bills, or cars, or jobs, or marriages? instead of thinking about heavenly things. Friends, we need to come to God's word time and again. We need to put off cultural thinking and put on the mind of Christ. We need to let the scriptures to reassure our hearts and strengthen our hope. We need to meditate on passages that highlight God's promises, passages like Romans 8. So I'll give you a few. Think about verse 1, Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Or think about verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or think about verse, verse 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Why don't you memorize some of these promises with another saint and see how the gospel truths encourage your soul. Friends, if you're weary fighting your sin, then hope in the Lord. As surely as the sun rises, our Savior will return and make all things new. 
So we see that the psalmist's hope is tied to God's promised redemption to Israel. So this is why in verse 7, he turns to exhort Israel to also trust in God. So look again in verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Here we find the only command in the entire psalm. Command to the whole community to hope in the Lord. Here the personal testimony of the psalmist turns to a corporate call of worship. Remember this psalm was, not written, was written for pilgrims who were headed to Jerusalem for worship corporately. They were going to deal with personal sin and sacrifice but also to remember their corporate hope. This is why the author supplies the congregation with motivations or reasons to join him in waiting on the Lord. Beloved, do you realize that personal devotion to the Lord is a corporate matter? Your personal dealings with the Lord are meant to spur others to hope and worship. How you are doing spiritually affects others. If each member in this congregation is doing well, then the whole body will grow in maturity. But when a member suffers, we all suffer together. This interdependence reveals that you need the ministry of this body, and this body needs your ministry. You need the ministry of this body, and this body needs your ministry. So do you come every Sunday ready to serve and be served? Do you come eager to encourage one another with the gospel and to be encouraged? This should be our expectation every Lord's Day. Now, how does a psalmist encourage Israel for corporate worship? These reasons that he gives. He reminds Israel of God's gracious character. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. I hope you can see the parallel between verse 4 and verse 7. For with the Lord, there is forgiveness. With Yahweh, there is forgiveness. This is our assurance. With Yahweh, with the Lord, there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. This is our hope. You cannot have one without the other. But how does God's character help in corporate worship? Well, it reminds God's people of what God has done as they look forward to what God will do. It reminds God's people of what God has done as they look forward to what God, has, God will do. So the psalmist looks back at the Exodus to show what kind of hope they should be looking for, namely, a new Exodus. We know this because of that word pair, steadfast love and bountiful redemption. For instance, listen to Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 to 9. This is the Lord speaking to Israel. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love 
with those, who with those who love him and keep his commandments. So redemption and steadfast love in the Old Testament would have brought the psalmist's minds and the audience's minds to the Exodus. When God purchased or redeemed or bought his people out of his own steadfast love and faithfulness. So that's the past. That's what God has done. That's his character. But what's the future? As Israel contemplates God's past redemption, the psalmist says in verse 8, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That's the future. Past, exodus, steadfast love and redemption is coming. It's coming in the future when all iniquity will be done away with. It's the same God who graciously redeemed Israel from slavery who will bring this final redemption, a new and better exodus, or we could say a new covenant. The psalmist is putting, pointing Israel to that eschatological hope he was waiting on so that all God's people might hope in the Lord. He's pointing forward to the day when the promised Messiah will restore all that was lost in the garden, the defeat of Satan, sin, and death. This Messiah who will come will establish God's kingdom forever. Now, year after year, pilgrims would journey to Jerusalem, pleading to the Lord for forgiveness and hoping in that coming redemption. One year turned to hundreds as God's people waited for his return. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. God took on flesh and dwelt among us. He came to be with his people. Out of his steadfast love, God, the second person of the Trinity, came and dwelt so that he might bear their iniquity. And from the time of his birth, for 30 years, Jesus would travel up to Jerusalem singing this psalm, singing Psalm 130. But he sang not to confess his own sin, but as the one who would bear Israel's iniquity and purchase their redemption. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus enjoyed that Passover meal, that meal we were talking about earlier from the Exodus. Jesus was establishing a new Exodus, a new covenant. And on that, that night, he took bread and he broke it. He said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It is in the blood of Jesus that we are forgiven and experience God's final redemption. Next day, Jesus ascended to another hill. He went up to Calvary to offer his life as a redeeming sacrifice, the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. 
He came to bear every single one of your sins if you trust in him. He bore it all on that cross. He bore the death that you deserve and he bore God's full anger and wrath. And as Jesus was dying on the cross, he cried out to God. As the author of Hebrews tells us, Jesus was heard because of his reverence. And he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus purchased our redemption by becoming a curse on the cross. He conquered by rising again from the dead and now offers free pardon, forgiveness, eternal life with God to everyone who calls on his name. Jesus is that promised Messiah, the hope of Israel and final redemption. He is the fulfillment of God's steadfast love. He purchased a bountiful redemption that is greater than all your sin. Friends, how can God be just and pardon sinners? Because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. This is the great assurance and only hope of forgiveness. Friends, do you know him? Do you know this forgiveness? Friends, there is no plea for mercy that will save you apart from Christ. There's nothing you can pray or do to atone for your iniquity. But if you confess your sins and you trust in his death and resurrection, then he is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins and cleanse you of all iniquity. Jesus right now offers you forgiveness, full redemption, eternal life to everyone who comes to him. So why don't you come? Come to him. Come to him. All who are heavy laden, burdened by sin, and he will give you rest. Rest for your soul until the day you see him face to face. So repent of your sins and trust in him, this great assurance of pardon. Now, beloved in Christ, for those who are Christians, we live in this already but not yet age, don't we? We've already experienced God's forgiveness. God has already sent his son and accomplished redemption. It is finished. But yet, Christ has not yet returned. We are forgiven, but we're not fully, we have not fully experienced the sweet communion with the Lord until the day Christ returns. Until that day we will fight that old man that wages war against your soul. So if you're struggling this morning, if you're discouraged or weary like our friend Dave, the assurance for you is that Christ has already paid for your iniquity. The assurance for you if you are a believer is that your sins are paid for He's given you your, his spirit and he will help you. 
He will enable you to walk in repentance and faith. Come to him. He is that gracious high priest who invites you to come. Receive help from him in your time of need. Remember what Christ has done on the cross as you look forward to the day when you'll sin no more. Meditate on the gospel daily as your assurance and hope. Let God's steadfast love in Christ encourage your heart and help you to repent and believe in him. Let God's work of redemption at the cross spur your confidence in his promises that we see in his word, those promises we read about from Romans 8. Beloved, God indeed is making all things new in you, in you, until he brings it completion on that final day. There's a hope of resurrection. We will be like him when he returns. So do not lose heart. Do not lose heart, but turn your eyes to his return. And let others help you in your endurance. Friends, what a joy we have to gather every Sunday. Come eager to be encouraged and to encourage others. We have this corporate hope in Christ who's united us to himself and to one another as a body. So let's get busy helping one another remember this great assurance and only hope. Jesus Christ is our sure and steady anchor for our souls. So let us trust in him as long as, the, as we continue in the flesh and hope in the day when sin will be no more and we will stand before him complete. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great assurance and hope we have in Christ. Lord, I ask that you enable us to daily put on the mind of Christ as we read your word and that we might live in light of his return. Help us to be a church who is immovable and steadfast, not because of anything good in us, but because of our great high priest who intercedes for us, who is for us, and has saved us. Keep us, O Father, trusting and hoping in your word, and we ask that you do far more than we think or imagine. In Christ's name we pray, amen.